Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, welcome Joanne Watson to this episode on the topic of Empress Eugenie. Watson's book, Empress Eugenie, A Footnote History, 1826 to 1920, is about a French empress who gets exiled to Britain after escaping a violent mob in 1870. And as with other episodes we have done on this podcast, our author is showing us new discoveries about her subject, something and some things that have been relegated to footnotes. Joanne has had a career in journalism in addition to history, um, but would you mind introducing yourself to the NBN audience? Yes. Hi, Nathan. Uh, My career actually was in sports broadcasting, but I did a degree in politics and modern history, which was... um, really something I'd always been very interested in. And of course, there's plenty of politics in sport. But um, whilst I was doing mostly live broadcasts, I did do quite a few documentaries and I was able to use my historical interest to to further that. Uh, what brought you into the history field? To be quite honest, it was something I'd been interested in since I was a child. I remember getting a, a history book when I was about 11 or 12, sort of the kings and queens of England and great discoveries, great explorers. And it was just something that that took my fancy, really. So I did it all the way through school and and university. And I followed it, you know, reading biographies and things like that after I'd finished. So really, it's always been part of my life. So the fact that I actually went into this effectively when I I finished my broadcasting career uh, was really no surprise to me, though a, a few people were a little... A little surprised when I told them I'd written this book. Um, and and how did you use journalism in your research for this topic? Well, I think some of the journalistic skills that you learn, such as the, the researching element, are actually part of how you do a, a book, how you you research a person. And some of the documentary skills that I'd developed were also integral to to the way I wrote this book. Well, topographically, um, what was it about Surrey, Hampshire and those borders that influenced you to write your book? 
Well, I moved to a small town on the Surrey-Hampshire borders, and one of the very first things I did was go on a guided walk round the town. And we stopped on the main street, and the guide said, pointing on the other side of the road, he said, um, that shop there used to be a butcher's. And he produced a photograph from around 1900. And there was this picture of this butcher's with all the carcasses hanging from the rails just a few feet above the ground, and a big sign above them saying, purveyor to HIM, Her Imperial Majesty, the Empress Eugenie. And I sat there thinking, the Empress Eugenie, now who was she? Because the Second Empire of France didn't really feature very much in my studies, primarily because it was bang in the middle of the Victorian age. And of course, people were, certainly in Britain, were much more concerned with what went on with Queen Victoria and the British Empire than they were with the French Empire. And so in what ways then is your book about the Empress different from your previous work, for example, on the history of cricket? You have moments of glory and also there was just a cricket tournament. Well, cricket, cricket's been my first love. And it's a sport that, as you know, is probably one of the national sports of Britain in the summer. And years and years ago, I was asked to research uh, the Bicentenary book of the history of the Marylebone Cricket Club, which is the premier cricket club in the world. And so when I was doing the research for that, inevitably you find lots of material that's never going to make the main book. And the publisher said to me, would I be interested in writing a cricket history? And that book was really about episodes in the game revolving around people, people that had great innings that changed the the course of a match or took a great catch or had a fantastic bowling performance. And most of them were historical. And it, it just sort of, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it scratched an itch, really. This was something I really wanted to do. And I spent goodness knows how many hours in the, the main library at Lord's, which is the, the preeminent cricket ground, I would say, in the world, uh, going through books, going through scorecards, going through people's recollections. But what it, the, the, the core of that book was really about people, and, and what they did. And in a way, my book about the Empress Eugenie is very much along the same lines. It's not a political um, analysis of her, of her life. It's much more about her, things that she did. And the reason I called it a footnote history is because, in essence, sometimes there are references to this you might find in an academic history. And you think, well, actually, I want to know more about that. And it sends you off at a tangent. And in a way, I've rather flipped a, a typical history biography by looking at it from that side rather than telling you who was the leader of this and who was the general at whatever battle. We know that Napoleon III was her husband, um, but it appears, and, and we know also that Empress Eugenie made a name for herself um, uh, as a trendsetter and also being from Spain. Can you describe the Empress's persona um, at the time and reputation? She was born in Spain and her father was the second son of a Spanish grandee. Her mother was a real social climber and she had cottoned on to this particular chap because he was the second son and his elder brother was childless. So she knew that given a few years, he would inherit the title and life would be a lot more comfortable than it was when she married him. He was a Bonapartist. He'd fought for Napoleon in Spain, which didn't go down actually very well with many of his countrymen. So they had quite a hard life to start with. 
until he inherited the title. Now, one thing about her and about her mother was that she was very keen that her daughters, because Eugenie had an elder sister, would receive a good education. And they sent her to Paris. And so she spent several years there. She wasn't an academic. She was actually sent to a, a town in southwest um, England called Clifton, which she absolutely hated. And she tried to run away because she was being teased because she had auburn hair and that her fellow chums would call her carrots. And she actually stowed, tried to stow away on a boat from Bristol with a couple of her equally disaffected chums. And it wasn't until her sister sort of um, foiled the spot, foiled the plan that she was sent back initially to Paris and then after her father died to Madrid. But she grew up to be a very beautiful young woman. Now, she fell in love with one of the preeminent dukes of Spain, but sadly he married her sister. And really, you get the impression that after that, Eugenie well, was a bit at a loss, really. You know, she uh, there were men around her because by now she had a title. And she was obviously both beautiful, wealthy, well-connected, and became a bit of a tease, to be quite honest. There was possibly another man that she really wanted to marry who didn't want to marry her. And having married her, her sister off, her mother then said, well, we've got to find you a husband and took her to Paris. And there she was appearing at all the major parties and the soirees. And that's how she met Napoleon III. And he was a notorious womanizer. And he said to her, what is the way to your heart, madam? And she said, through the chapel, sire. She definitely wasn't going to be another notch on his bedpost. I, I will say that this about Napoleon, um, he'd actually fathered a couple of children whilst he'd been in jail after a failed coup. So that gives you some idea about his background. She was cut from a different cloth. And I think she probably realised that if she wanted to be empress, she certainly didn't want to be his mistress first of all. And eventually, because that was the only way he could get her, when he became emperor and wanted to start a dynasty, he actually scouted around Europe, actually, for a royal princess, because a lot of the French public thought that's the sort of bride he should have. And no one wanted to marry him, primarily because they didn't think his longevity as emperor was going to be that great. And eventually, uh, he married her, and virtually everyone at court had looked down on her. Not just because she was Spanish, but because in, if he couldn't marry a princess, he should have married a French woman. And so that stigma of not being French lasted for the rest of her life, really. Everything she did, they could use that as a, as a, a, a badge of dishonor. You know, if anything went wrong, it's her fault because she's a foreigner. But she, I mean, she was made of sterner stuff. And even though Napoleon continued his womanizing all the way through their marriage, she decided to... Uh, look at certain aspects of life that she wanted to push forward. And one of those things was her feminism. And also because she became this fashion icon, which again was a sort of, it was a strange thing really. She was a beautiful woman. She had the, the best couturiers in Paris. And she went to England in 1855 to see Queen Victoria. Well, they both went. And she arrived dressed full tartan which appealed to the British, as you can imagine. And she had began this lifelong friendship with Queen Victoria, who was, was many years older than her. 
And people just sort of thought, wow, you know, tartan, tartan mania. It spread to the United States, would you believe? People wanted to dress in tartan. And a few years later, she was introduced to a Brit who was living in Paris called Charles Frederick Worth, who became the founder, the father of haute couture. And, of course, we're getting into a period now where, obviously, photographs were in their infancy, but there were drawings, magazines were coming up, and suddenly she was the poster girl. She became famous not just across Europe, but also in the United States. And this was really something that um, cemented her, her, her prominence as you know, a fashionista, really. Whether she was that bothered about it, I don't know. But she did understand that if you were empress in what was a very glamorous empire, then you had to dress accordingly. When she wasn't sort of on show, she was she was far more um, accustomed to dressing quite plainly. So she had a she had a, a quite a, a firm streak of, of her own, you know, her own way she wanted to go. But she did suddenly become a, a fashion icon, rather. I wouldn't say it was deliberately, really. It was just one of those things that evolved because the empire was very glamorous. Some people called it an empire of sleaze and splendor. But but Napoleon wanted to show off. You know, the crown jewels were dusted off. She was, she had all those. Lots of other jewellery was created for her. She was a very beautiful woman, who men just fell in love with. But she she wasn't uh, she wasn't the, the female equivalent of Napoleon. She she wasn't uh, attracted to lots of other lovers. She very much went her her way as as the the, the mistress of the empire. If you follow me. Can the Empress's story be recognized as one of being a scapegoat? Uh, she was ridiculed for what reason? Well, when anything went wrong, they turned on her. So really because she was Spanish. I mean, sadly, what happened in the 1850s and 60s is what happens now. You find a scapegoat and nationality is the most obvious way to do that. And she had, during her life, she she decided that she had an affinity with Marie Antoinette, who, of course, had gone to the guillotine well, 60 odd years before, but who was also a foreigner. She was an Austrian. And she felt, I think, as the empire went along, that her life was running in parallel because whatever she did, if it was in the wrong, or even if it wasn't in the wrong, she would be blamed for it. And and that that is why she was made a scapegoat, not only during the empire, but you know, years and years afterwards. Why is the Suez Canal important? Well, the Suez Canal was a venture that the French had in uh, had started actually during Napoleon Bonaparte's time. He wanted he thought there were options there to colonize Egypt, and a famous British admiral, Lord Nelson, had um, disabused him of that and 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 then beaten him in a battle there. And the idea that you could have a canal which would cut off a very tedious journey around the Cape of Good Hope to get to, to the East Indies uh, was one that had gone on for years. And a, a French diplomat called Ferdinand de Lesops uh, took this in hand. And with the Egyptian government, they decided to have a go, basically building canal, because it's actually the same level. You don't need locks or anything like that. It's, it's you know, 100 odd miles, but even so, it, it looked possible. And the French were very wary, actually, because the British didn't want them to do it. They thought that this would affect the British interests in India, which was the jewel of the, the, the crown, as it were. And so 
they wouldn't invest in it. But the French eventually did invest in it. And although they started with a pick and shovel digging this canal, which would have taken them goodness knows how many years, once mechanization got underway and once they had this investment, the canal was ready to be opened in 1869. But at that period, the politics at home in France were getting a little little tasty, as it were. Napoleon's initial regime was quite repressive. But during the late 1860s, he tried to become a bit more liberal. And that had uh, unleashed a, a lot of unrest. And he didn't think that he could go to Egypt to open it. So Eugenie was sent by herself. And it, for some, in, in some respects, it was the highlight of, or one of the highlights of the empire, the Suez Canal. And of course, what they um, didn't realize, of course, is that the British eventually took over the canal. Uh, effectively, they, they bought a 45% share in it a few years later. And a lot of the, the naval traffic was through the canal. But for that that period at the end of 1869, it was one of the flagship achievements of the French Empire. In 1870, um, and shortly thereafter, the Empress went into exile. Um, what were the events surrounding, you know, the vengeful attacks that she was suffering from? Well, the French had been inveigled into war by uh, Prussia, led by the Prussian Chancellor Otto uh, Bismarck. And essentially what had happened is that the French were a Catholic country, they were looking for a new king of Spain, another Catholic country. And uh, Bismarck had suggested a German prince. And the French had sort of turned around and said, no way, this is none of your business. And essentially, the Prussians withdrew the candidacy of this chap. And the French went a step further. They were, in theory, the greatest power on continent, in continental Europe. And so they went to the Prussians and said what we want is a guarantee that you won't try again. And the French ambassador met with the King of Prussia and the Prussians refused to guarantee that they wouldn't get involved again. And although things were sort of, um, you know, the, the ambassador went back to town effectively, but the, the story of the events was edited by Bismarck into um, an infamous thing called the Ems Telegram, which seemed to be an insult to the French. Now, behind all this, was the fact that the Prussians were trying to unify Germany under Prussia. There were about 100 years before, there'd been 300 German-speaking entities, some of them very small. And gradually, through the 1860s, the Prussians had got rid of the Austrians in northern uh, Germany. And they saw that the French were the one country that could effectively stymie their plans. And so they were the French were inveigled into war, and although they were very gung-ho about it, you know, the French were saying, you know, we'll be in the Rhineland in 12 days' time, and they were selling guidebooks to Berlin in Paris. That didn't turn out to be the case. They were far poorer in organization, in uh, all their logistics, their training. They were also badly affected by smallpox. The, there was an epidemic in Europe, and whereas the Prussians had been vaccinated, the French hadn't. And around oh, 100,000 French were infected and about 25,000 soldiers died vis-a-vis uh, -vis about 350 Prussians. So that the French were, were taken into war. The French were beaten. Napoleon at the Battle of Sedan surrendered, which was a great humiliation, as you can imagine, for the empire. And as soon as this news got back to Paris, the mob started to descend on the Tuileries Palace where the empress was. 
And she then, I'm sure, thought, wow, this is going to be Marie Antoinette again. You know, I could be lynched, I could be killed. And so she fled from Paris, uh, taking nothing with her except a, a very small handbag. But what she had done, which I think shows her, her presence of mind, is that almost from the beginning, the war looked as if it was going to go badly. And so she'd taken all her personal jewellery, wrapped it in newspaper, and sent it round with some ladies-in-waiting to the wife of the Austrian ambassador, Princess Pauline Metternich, who was a great friend. And it was they were smuggled out in the diplomatic bag to England and banked in the Bank of England. And she she pulped all the incriminating documents because what they when the Tuileries was was invaded by the mob, what they were looking for were things that they could show that she'd been disloyal to uh, the French. And some had said that she she was her, her posturing was one of the reasons Napoleon had gone to war. But you have to remember the consensus of opinion in France was that they were going to see, uh, teach the Prussians a lesson, and so her feelings were very much in line with the the vast majority of the French. But of course, she was then quoted as saying it was her war, which she denied. But of course, that stuck. So forever onwards, she became the the figurehead of this disastrous war, which ended the empire. Do you think that she was really responsible for this collapse? No, I, I, I think, as I say, I think she supported the idea. And she was very, she could be quite forceful. And you, you have to remember that Napoleon hated arguments. And there were occasions when his womanizing got to such an extent that he was given a pretty hard time by Eugenie. And there are some suggestions that she went in and, and said to him, look, you know, be a man. You don't be a coward. You've, we've got to go to, to, to fight this battle. We've got to de- you know, defeat Bismarck. But, but you can't just blame it all on her because there were many other very important characters in, in, in the French government and the French army who were posturing. You know, they, were, they were dying to go into battle. You know, that this was the fight that they were going to win that would cement the empire. So I think it's very, very unfair to lay the, the, the Franco-Prussian War just at her doorstep. And with Napoleon III, uh, what happened to their marriage? Well, he was he was imprisoned by the Prussians uh, after the Battle of Sedan and, and kept in captivity for about nine months in what sounds like a rather gentlemanly existence in, in northern uh, Germany. But he was eventually released in 1871, and he came to uh, live in exile with her in Chislehurst, which is in Kent in, in southeast England. And they stayed there until 1873, when he eventually sought surgery for uh, what had been a, a terrible illness he'd been suffering from, from bladder stones. And he had two operations, and he was about to have a third when um, he, he died. Now, their relations before... He, he went into exile, were a little testy, I think, but seemingly the three years or the two and a half years that they were together in exile were probably one of the better times of their marriage. And, you know, he led, he led quite a nice gentlemanly existence in England. He'd, he'd been in exile in England before, so he knew lots of people. He spoke English. Um, and in a way, what he was doing was biding his time, he hoped, to launch a, a counter offensive and get back into power and, and be restored as emperor or if not him that their son would become emperor 
But he was never in a fit state to do that. And so, as I say, he died in 1873, um, you know, not that long after, after the FMR collapsed. Um, what about the Empress's family, aside from Napoleon III? Um, did she confide in any other family members for assistance or help? Well, her sister had died in 1860. Her mother was still alive and living in Madrid. But her focus was very much on their son, the Prince Imperial. And he went to uh, the Woolwich Army Academy in in South London and was being trained up, if you like, as an emperor in waiting. So I don't know that she really confided in him, but she certainly focused all her her attention and, and, and indeed the Bonaparte attention on him being a fit and able uh, emperor. He was surprisingly quite popular in England. He was a great uh, favourite of Queen Victoria. Many, many people were intimidated by her, but he wasn't one of them. And her youngest daughter, Princess Beatrice, was just a few months younger than the Prince Imperial. And so there was some suggestion there could even have been a liaison between the two had things worked out. But he was a Catholic and Princess Beatrice was a Protestant. And Queen Victoria... Um, was hanging on to her youngest daughter. She wasn't letting her go anywhere. And I don't think that was ever a marriage that was was likely to have have happened. But he had a a, a place in Empress Eugenie's master plan. But very sadly, that wasn't to to be. Who was the American dentist that you write about who helped her escape from Paris and into England? He was a chap called Thomas Evans, who hailed from uh, Philadelphia, he was a, one, a, a very innovative dentist and he brought quite a few modern techniques over into Europe. And he'd been recruited by another American living in Paris who'd come over to the States and seen him uh, demonstrate some new techniques and said, you know, why don't you come to Paris? There was a big American um, group of, well, very wealthy Americans in a sort of the millionaire quarter in Paris and he had a, a, an exceptional clientele, so aristocrats, the imperial family. And when Eugenie and her solitary lady-in-waiting escaped the Tuileries, they sort of jumped in a cab and, uh, and looked for someone to help them. And they tried a couple of people, and you can imagine there's a riot going on in the city centre. No one wants to open their doors. And she eventually got to the dentist, was taken in, and when Evans came back from his... Um, his work elsewhere. There she was waiting, asking for help. And Evans, it was quite a, how can I put this? Well, he was quite a courageous man, I suppose, in many respects. And he said, right, that's not a problem. We can, I'll certainly help you. And so him, he and his nephew, who was around at the same time, they decided to smuggle these two ladies out of Paris. Uh, they disguised her as a, an invalid an English invalid, and they got a cab, and he, and he was a you know a good slick talker, and basically they they drove, changing horses here and there up to the north of uh, France to Deauville, where they managed to persuade a British baronet who had a yacht in the harbour to take them across to England. It was a terrible journey; that the Channel was very very rough that day. But they got to England, and Evans didn't go back to Paris immediately. He sort of started scouting around for places for them to live. And he became a a very frequent visitor to Eugenie in in later years. What was surprising about Evans 
was that when he went back into Paris, he he wasn't subject to any sort of discrimination because of his involvement in helping her escape. He was a very popular, he was called Handsome Tom. He was a very popular man during the, the republic that followed the empire. And he made an awful lot of money by what we would call insider dealing, because a lot of the people that came to see him in a professional capacity were those that were involved in the rebuilding of Paris. This is the period in which the Paris that we would recognise now with the wide boulevards was born. So big chunks of Paris were were destroyed. The properties were bought up. He would find out in advance where the next stage of this building work was going to buy. He'd buy himself some properties and sell them back to the government at inflated prices. So when he died, he, he had enough money to... Um, set up a foundation to to uh, establish a medical school in the states um he he was um a very charismatic fam- uh, chap but in terms of um helping eugenie he was a he was a major figure can you tell us more about uh eugenie's son and his cause of death you write about the british army and being also in south africa too well the british had um colonial holdings in South Africa. And what had happened was that after he'd left the the Army Academy at Woolwich, he couldn't take a commission in the British Army, but he'd been allowed to join a regiment in Aldershot, which, for those of you who don't know the geography, is about two or three miles from Farnborough, which is where Eugenie ended up. And he'd gone there, and he tried to join the French Army in the draft, and they declined. He tried to join the Austrian Army, and they declined. And when the, the Zulu Wars broke out, and the Zulu Wars are in Natal, part of South Africa, uh, they'd lived in a sort of uh, independent area and had rashly strayed into British-held territory. And the British rather overreacted. And the Zulu Wars happened, and his regiment were t- sent off to South Africa. And he came in for a lot of stick in uh, France, who said, well, there you are, you know, you, you, you're a an army officer, but you're not going into battle, you know, a weedy, uninspiring individual. And I think he was a bit fed up of this sort of attitude. And so he said no. And he pleaded with both Eugenie and Queen Victoria to let him go. The British Prime Minister was against this. And they said, well, if you do go, you can only go as an observer. Nowhere near any action. And he, he arrived in Durban and he joined the British commandant in an observer capacity. Very early on, he showed a bit of the impetuousness that he'd inherited from Eugenie, I think, and he he charged at some Zulus using the sword that the great Napoleon Bonaparte had used at Austerlitz. And the British were um, horrified by this. They thought, no, 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 we've got to keep him away from the front line. So they sent him to a a part of of their um, army, where he was basically just going to do reconnaissance. He was a very talented artist, and basically he was just going to go out, draw some diagrams of hills and whatever else, and a bit of a reconnaissance. And he went out with eight people, eight soldiers, and they were just having a, a coffee break. Effectively, they they got off their horses, they were resting, and they were ambushed by Zulus. And as he jumped onto his horse, one of the saddle straps broke. And the saddle came off. He fell off, despite the fact he was a very, very good horseman. The horse fell on him, injured his shoulder, and the others had, had ridden off, unaware that of the predicament that was he was in. And 
he tried to fight off the Zulus with just a gun, but they had their assegai, their spears, and he was fatally wounded. And you can imagine that the horror in the British camp when they realised this, and they went to recover the body. But what they would, what they did say was that all the fatal wounds were to his front to show that he'd been a very brave man in trying to fight off the enemy. Now, when the news came back, Eugenia was absolutely distraught because not only was it the end of her uh, imperial ambitions, you know, this was the, her only child. And she, you know, couldn't believe it. She was absolutely mortified, as indeed was Queen Victoria and the, and the British nation. And the French were horrified. They, they accused the British of murder, effectively. They didn't like the prince. They didn't want an imperial uh, ruler anymore. But the fact that he died at British hands is always good for Anglo-French relations. Uh, and, and so that was the end of her dynastic ambitions. And when he, the body was brought back, she was there, you know, she, she, she sort of was over the coffin. She wouldn't eat. She wouldn't drink barely. She, she lived on milk and rum for a month until the coffin came back. And Queen Victoria said, well, I'm going to go to the funeral. Now, this was completely against royal protocol. And Disraeli, who was the British prime minister, said, no, you, you, you can't do that, ma'am. You know, you, the, the royals don't go to ordinary people's funerals. And the story goes that Queen Victoria summoned Israeli and sort of gave him a 90-minute lecture on the fact that she was going to go. And, okay, she wouldn't go into the church, because, remember, she's Protestant and, and it was a Catholic church, but she would lay a wreath on the coffin and then she'd be sitting on a dais outside uh, Camden Place, which is the, the house they were living in in Chislehurst, and, and witness the events. And... The Prince of Wales and a couple of other British dukes, they were the, the principal um, pallbearers, which gives you some idea about this, the status of the, of the Prince Imperial's funeral. But it is quite bizarre that a member of the Bonaparte family, and you know, it's only sort of 60-odd years, 70 years since, since Waterloo and, and the, 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 the British beating the French, that they'd all come out for a, a family that had been hated for many decades in the early part of the 19th century. And it was very sad. He was a, he was a, a very brave young man. And um, for Eugenie, she felt that the end of her life had come. Her mother died a few months later. And she then decided that she was going to go to South Africa the following year on a pilgrimage and see where her son had been, where he'd lived and where he died. And Queen Victoria sent some escorts. In fact, Queen Victoria funded the trip. And they arrived in South Africa. And, and she went to where he died and brought back lots of um, grass seeds from the area. I mean, there was a little uh, cross that had been, had been left there. Uh, in fact, by Queen Victoria, it had ordered a, a memorial to be established for um, the Prince Imperial. And she brought back these various bits and pieces, which she would ultimately plant in Farnborough, which is where, having lost both her husband and her son, she wanted to build a mausoleum where both of them could be um, entombed. And the locals in Kent wouldn't sell her any land or sufficient land to do this. So she then started to look for somewhere to live. And she came to Farnborough, which is, as I mentioned earlier, very close to Aldershot, quite close to uh, where Queen Victoria lived in Windsor, and bought this house. 
and bought some extra land that she was going to build a mausoleum on. And how was her life in a farm barrel? Well, she bought this very large house and then promptly extended it, and it had a 270-odd acre estate. It's a very quirky building. Someone described it as a, a Swiss chalet. It has lots of turrets. It still does, and the main building is still there. And But one thing she did do when she was in exile was she kept a very low profile. She was always being asked to be a patron of this, that, and the other, and she refused because she was very grateful to the British royal family, for taking her in. You know, this not often you really want to have monarchs of, of her profile in, in exile, but, but because of this bond with Queen Victoria, because they could talk about the same people. You know, they both knew the emperor of this, or they both knew the king of that. And her life in Farnborough was was quite um, quite strict. She, Although she was no longer empress of the French, she was very insistent that she was still an empress and that she was treated as such. So she had a little court and, you know, they would bow and, and, and curtsy to her in the morning and, and when they came and entered rooms and, and things like that. The language of the, of, the, of the hill, as it was called, was predominantly French because she had brought a lot of her French staff over and members of the sort of Bonaparte uh, legacy would, would come over and do a tour of duty. And she had with her... Napoleon's longtime secretary, her lady-in-waiting, ended up running the house in Farnborough. And while she was doing this, she, she wasn't actually allowed to go back into France for many years. But she was determined almost from, from the outset to start recovering some of the property that she felt belonged to her and to her family. And by property, I meant you know, buildings, artwork, statuary. Um, she had to. She had inherited quite a large estate from her mother. So, having sold quite a lot of her jewellery, uh, starting in 1871, in fact, which had sort of funded their lifestyle, she now was quite a wealthy woman. So, having sort of got Farnborough sorted out, she then commenced the building of St Michael's Abbey, which has the imperial crypt underneath it. And this is a what they call it flamboyant French Gothic complete with very gruesome gargoyles and the crypt underneath. And, and, and basically she sort of said to the architect, I want the same sort of dome as is in Paris at Les Invalides, and I want the same sort of windows that are in the Vatican and I'll have a bit of the same sort of marble work on the floor. And, um, oh, those pictures I had in the Tuileries, those Rubens, copies of those Rubens, I'll have those in the church as well. Though the crypt itself is actually not not very extravagant at all, but the but the abbey, and in fact they've recently restored it and cleaned it inside. It does look uh, quite magnificent there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What happened in France after her disappearance? Uh, who took over in power? Yeah. Well, what happened then was that you would almost expect that after the Battle of Sedan that the, the French Empire 
would collapse, that would be the end of the war. But it wasn't. The Prussians marched on Paris and besieged Paris and, in fact, tried to starve out the inhabitants. They uh, almost succeeded in doing that. In fact, they, they, it ended up with the French actually getting so desperate they ate the zoo animals. Not the lions and tigers, that was probably a bit beyond it, but they did eat the elephants. And uh, so the French were under siege for, for several months. And some people who had actually been advisors to Napoleon pre-war became the government. And that eventually morphed into the Third Republic. But after the, the Prussians and the French had signed um, a, a peace treaty, the, some of the National Guard in Paris tried to take over power in what was known as the Commune. And they had quite um, some socialist ideas. And in fact, Karl Marx was supposed to have, have, have incorporated it in some of his policies. But the one thing they did do that was quite significant, although they didn't last very long, was they burnt down the Tuileries. The, the, Prus- the, the Prussians had got rid of the Prussians had got rid of Saint Cloud, which was another palace. They'd shelled that to, to bits, but they burnt down the Tuileries. Though actually, the, the building or the shell of the building stayed there for many years until the government decided to sell it off. And Charles Frederick Worth, the, the, the couturier, went and bought great big chunks of the palace. And amongst the things he bought were some doors, and they did eventually find their way into Farnborough Hill, and they are still there in the house. Is the mausoleum for Napoleon III, her husband, still around? Yeah, it's still open. It, it, it opens on a Saturday afternoon. You can go down, and if you're lucky, the, the abbot takes you around, because there was a, a monastery as well, a Benedictine monastery. And you go down the, the steps into the crypt, and on one side is the, the granite sarcophagus of Napoleon III, and on the other side is the uh, matching sarcophagus of the Prince Imperial. And, uh, and in the centre is an altar. Now, originally, Eugenie wanted to be buried in the crypt, but not in a very prominent position. But much later, they, did, they changed the mind, and she's actually... Her sarcophagus is behind the altar, above, above and behind the altar, in a sort of niche and so you can go in there and, you know, see see these three sarcophagus. And every every year there is a ceremony to mark or the the, the birth the birth and the death of Napoleon. The same with um, um, Eugenie and a member of the Bonaparte family will come over. Uh, what is interesting is that the French government every so often they sort of see if the the Benedictines would let them have Napoleon back. Uh, the king in Paris in 1848, Louis-Philippe, had died in England in exile, and he'd been buried in a small town in, in Surrey, not that far from Farnborough, actually, and the French had managed to get him back. Uh, and they, they have, every so often they come out and say, well, can we have the, you know, the remains of Napoleon III? And the, the monks basically turn around and say, you weren't interested in him when he was alive, so you're certainly not having him back. So you'll stay in Farnborough, I think, in perpetuity. Had she completely lost her public notoriety um, or was she popular in a new way while in Hampshire? She was still notorious in France. And she, every so often, she didn't get involved in politics very much, but she did in the famous Dreyfus case, uh, which was a, a soldier who'd been accused of uh, 
betraying the French army. Um, it, it was a sort of anti-Semitic plot, basically. And she had come out in favour of Dreyfus. And the, the French press had sort of lambasted her again. But so she she was still, she sort of kept a very low profile in France and she kept a very low profile in England. But she was, you know, she could be seen in Farnborough. She would, the local agricultural show would be held in the grounds and she'd give cups to the local school and, uh, you know, things like that. So she wasn't a recluse. She'd walk down to the station and pick up the evening paper. She had, um, because of her relations with the army in all you know, in older shots, she could almost sort of say, "I'd like a you know an army band for this event," and they'd send one round. So she she had um, a sort of rather strange, uh, not not notorious in Britain and not a particularly high profile, but she was a very keen on sailing, and she eventually bought herself a yacht, and would sail up and down the Med. And every summer she would go to Cowes. Now Cowes is on the Isle of Wight on the south coast of, of Britain. And this was where the big yachting regattas would be held and where all the European royalty would turn up every year. And so she would turn up in her yacht and uh, the Kaiser would turn up in his yacht and uh, the Queen Victoria had her yacht down there and the Tsar of Russia would turn up. It was quite a sort of strange strange bunch, but in the, in the 1890s, they were still all going strong. And so so she would be she would be seen, but she didn't like having a photograph taken. She dressed in black from the moment the Prince Imperial died and never changed that, which was an idea she got from Queen Victoria, who dressed in black for the rest of her life after Prince Albert had died. So she would she would cast this sort of, sort of strange figure, I suppose, you know, the woman in black over there, well, that's an empress. Oh, really, you know. So it, it, she was, she'd make trips to, to France when she was allowed to, and she eventually bought a villa in the south of France. And again, it became a magnet for royals, Queen Victoria liked to go down to the south of France. So she'd pop over. The you know the Tsar would pop in, the Emperor of Austria would pop round. It it it, it it's rather strange, rather odd. But she had created this fantastic garden in this house, and so she became a very popular woman, um, including with another Empress. Actually, the Empress of Austria, Empress Elizabeth or Empress Cici, she became known, who had been estranged from her family, and she was a very regular visitor to uh, the Villa Cyrenos in, in near Monaco. So she, she, was, she wasn't, I suppose her notoriety did diminish, except when she was buried, funny enough, when she died in 1920, they, uh, the British government had decided that they, I mean, it wasn't a state funeral, but there was a big crowd that brought the coffin back. She died when she was visiting relatives in Madrid. So the coffin came through France, at Farnborough Station, it was put on a gun carriage to the Abbey. And then a couple of days later, there was a funeral, which was attended by numerous royals and obviously lots of Bonaparte um, family members or distant family members, I should say, really, by this stage. And the government or the army decided that they would fire a 21-gun salute. And the French government objected. They objected to the honours being paid to their former empress. Now... That's really petty, I would suggest. And it's even more petty when you consider that during the First World War, she had actually given over her house to be a military hospital and had funded um, numerous activities for the French Red Cross. But they, they just never forgot. It was in many ways very sad. And, and, and the other point was that 
going back to the end of the Franco-Prussian War, the, 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 the Germans had taken over Alsace-Lorraine. And after that, it, while she was in exile, Empress Eugenie had written to uh, the Emperor of France, the Kaiser, and said, you know, why did you do this? Was it because you thought they were all German speakers? And he'd written this letter back to her saying, no, it was just strategic. It was a big industrial area. And towards the end of the First World War, when they were deciding on what was going to happen to the territory, obviously after, after the Germans had been beaten, Alsace-Lorraine was originally going to stay in Germany. And she produced this letter from the Kaiser, which had been written in 1872 or three, and got it sent via her, via, via the French prime minister's dentist, um, to say, look, you need to present this to the authorities deciding on the boundaries for post-World War One, And that's why Alsace-Lorraine came back into, into the French uh, jurisdiction. So I think it was pretty petty of the French to take that action at her funeral. Were there any news stories that you referenced, particularly uh, newspaper articles, um, just news in general from the, the time? Yes, I went into the, the British newspaper archive um, and there were lots of sort of little quaint little stories. So, you know, things about the horticultural show, you'd suddenly find them or you'd find a newspaper would suddenly say, um, the Empress Eugenie passed through Paris unmolested uh, and strange little things like this because because she had a profile despite her best efforts really when she was in England because of her association I think with Queen Victoria um, she there were lots of little things bits and pieces and just to give you uh, an, an example sometimes when I was doing some internet surfing and digital research you'd come across a story and then I could go into the newspaper archive and, and flesh it out, which was, was fascinating. And it wasn't, I mean, some of these stories were syndicated worldwide. So I remember reading one report in a British newspaper that was subsequently syndicated in Australia, sort of three or four months later, and then referenced in uh, New Zealand and might have been picked up in the New York Times. So there were, some of them were quite bizarre, you know, really uh, just little little vignettes about her almost still being still alive, to be quite honest. You know, the Empress Eugenie is ill. We don't think it's serious, but it makes a, a col- uh, makes half a, a paragraph in, in, a, in a newspaper. Um, but, uh, but if I could sort of move on to digitalization, I remember reading somewhere that she'd, uh, one of her entertainments, as it were, was knitting and needlework. And I just did a, a search, Empress Eugenie and knitting. And I came up with this blog from the Scott Polar Institute in Cambridge, which had been written to mark, uh, I think it was National Knitting Week. And it was all about these two pieces of knitwear that they, they have in Cambridge, which we would now call a balaclava. And these were knit because in 1875, the British were sending a naval expedition to the Arctic. And it rather captured people's imagination. So Eugenie and a couple of her ladies knit these what they were called helmet caps in that period. They were just like woolen hats. And she went down to Portsmouth. And, and this is all, you know, you follow this in the newspaper. There's a report of her going down there with the Prince Imperial, handing over these these caps. And then you can find there's a report about what happened. They, um, The British Navy would wear these caps. They, be, they became known as Eugenie wigs or Eugenies. And they'd wear them under their seal skin caps or they might sleep in them. 
And, uh, you know, they thanked her by naming an archipelago after her. But it's one of those things that if you found a story in one place, you could then quite possibly find a story somewhere else in a newspaper archive. Um, there was another similar one about the, the, some Scottish bagpipers that she met. And, and uh, the, the story was picked up from by Bagpipe News, actually, which I could follow through right to the story about these bagpipers going to one of the their country homes, the, the Chateau de Compagnie in the 1860s and, and playing and, and dancing. Can you imagine Scottish dancing in, in the middle of France? It, the naked knees were supposedly quite alarming, as was the music played on bagpipes. But, but basically, the idea about digital searching these days is, of course, you can put in random searches and come up with some very unexpected results. Other material sources that you used um, to research the Empress, um, how much of it was autobiographical at all? Well, she was very adamant she wasn't going to write an autobiography. Um, and she destroyed lots of private documents. And I think she said that she she just didn't want to put her side of the story because it would always just rouse people's anger. And there were you know times people said, oh, she's going to write this story, she's going to write this story. She was adamant she wasn't. There were people that wrote about her, friends and foes, and some of them would write a piece that might not be published for 30-odd years till after she died, which gives you some indication of what stance they were going to talk about her. But there were very few, and so they would quote the Empress, um, but they could have very diametrically opposed opinions of her. But in terms of writing her own story, she didn't. She did occasionally sit down with people and, and, and talk about certain aspects, but she was very wary of uh, going on record on controversial issues. You write about digitized, um, or your research, uh, use digitized sources. Um, what what institutions did you use um, in for, for completing those tasks, and how do you think um, the digital humanities could benefit from your research on that? Well, I, well I th- you know, I mean, when I did my first book, I spent goodness knows how many days and hours in the library, and sometimes there's no way of connecting one element to another. Whereas if you if you can go on the digital uh, search mode, as it were, you can suddenly find a reference to one item here that you can corroborate very easily by doing an internet search. So it's really like being a historical detective. And a lot of a lot of material that was written in the late 19th century, early 20th century has now been digitalized. And there's a lot of universities that have it. There's a lot of access to um, artwork as well. And and basically you can, you know, you can look at Queen Victoria's diaries online. You can go through of um, books that have been digitalized, um, references that have been suddenly rejuvenated, really, books that have been reprinted. There's a one book called My Years in Paris that was written by Princess Pauline Metternich describing her time in Paris that provided lots of little um, entrees into life. Another book by an American socialite called uh, Lily Moulton. There's a, a Gutenberg uh, digitalization and, and, and sources like that have produced a lot of material for me. But just, sometimes you just find someone who's done a, uh, a reference on, on jewellery and you'll find in there there's a reference to, 
to her jewels, or you'll find a reference to um, certain artwork. And and you, and by by following it up, because it's on online now, you can spend minutes rather than days, you know, finding material and getting it linked to other material, other sources. I mean, for example, um, she went back to Egypt in 1905, so. 30 odd years, 35 years after she'd launched the Suez Canal. And I'd seen some reference to her going back to Egypt and I sort of did a search and I came across a, an archaeological um, document which was talking about some tombs in Luxor that were being excavated in this period. And she'd gone, she'd gone to Egypt. It was very popular in 1905 for some reason. Nice temperature, Western-style hotels and a lot of the European... Um, weather followers in the winter had gone down there. And so she'd gone down to this this tomb and was very keen to go down below. And Mary mind she's, what, 80-odd by this stage. And she is heard from, by the archaeologist, the leader of this archaeological dig, uh, James Quibble, uh, talking in French to, to her secretary. And he's saying to her, oh, you know, please, your highness, don't, don't tire yourself out. And she says, no, 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 I'm going down to have a look and she comes down into this dig into the tomb which by now is virtually empty they'd removed all the, the artifacts and quibble says to her oh i'm sorry madam you know we the, the tomb is virtually empty and i'm afraid i've got nowhere for you to sit and she says oh no that'll do and points at this chair and just plonks herself down in this te- chair this chair is a three thousand year old egyptian throne belonging to an Egyptian princess. Now, there's no way I would have been researching Egyptian archaeological references if I'd been in a library. But because you could do a sort of random, sometimes not random, but a link search, you come up with sort of little anecdotes like that that I've never seen written anywhere else before. A bit like the the Arctic knit, knitwear. You know, I'd never seen that referenced anywhere before, but it was fairly easy. So what I would say to people is basically random searching can actually produce you lots of little gems without you straying and spending days and days in libraries. And because because a lot of this came out of lockdown, you have to remember that we were in a situation where libraries weren't open um, and, and you couldn't just pop into place A and place B. Uh, but a lot of material appeared online during that, that particular period. And so it was um, far easier for me to, to do the research. And a lot of, oh, there's quite a, there's, I think there's 50 odd images in, in my book and a lot of museums, uh, the Met um, and one of the, the museums in Paris, the Musée Carnavale, have made a lot of images uh, public domain. So you can actually use them commercially, which in the past would never have happened. And that, that is something that came out of the pandemic. This this sort of massive, massive um, treasure trove, really, of, of uh, images. Her home became an army hospital in World War One. Um, what else did she do to maintain her duty to like the French Empire going forward? Well, she because of her in, involvement, she did try and support a lot of French causes, usually anonymous. There were various things that um, she, she had this campaign to to get back a lot of the things she believed belonged to her. And the French government decided 
that actually they didn't want anything to do with the Bonapartes. They didn't want anything to do with Louis XVI. And so suddenly, as well as the things that she wanted back, she found herself inundated with cartloads of artifacts, paintings, uh, you name it, she got it. And the, the house wasn't big enough, to be honest. Even with her, her villa in the south of France, it wasn't big enough to, to uh, look after all these things. So she did donate certain things to the French state, to, to certain uh, museums there. She did, uh, as I say, with the, the, the military hospital, um, open that up. But the French said, no, you can't have any French wounded. So there were there were British and Belgians were treated there. But she did send uh, money anonymously to the French Red Cross. Uh, you know, you, I really felt that no matter what she did, there was this feeling that they shouldn't acknowledge her worth. Yet uh, it was grossly unfair. And she did, you know, I mean, she just said she donated some things and she, she gave money in lots of causes uh, in France. And remember, she, she wasn't even French. I mean, she was Spanish. But her feeling was that she wanted to resurrect the, the good name of the empire. And so she tried her best in that way to do it. Can the public visit her home in Farnborough? Is it still there? It's it's now a school. Um, after Napoleon's nephew, Prince Victor Bonaparte, inherited the house in 1920, he lived there for a few years and then he died. And it was bought by some local nuns who wanted to expand their convent school. And it's now an independent, that's a private secondary school. And it is um, very well functioning as a school there. Their emblem is a bee, which is the Napoleon or the Bonaparte emblem, and their blazers are green, which is the Bonaparte colour. But sadly, the school is not open to the public. I mean, I've, I've been around it, I've had the conducted tour and and scenes of the bits and pieces that are still remaining from the empire. But it's not open to the public. It's a great shame. I, um, I'm having some correspondence with the headmistress, and I'm, I'm love to be able to persuade her to open. we have these what are called open days so every September buildings that aren't normally open to the public may be open for a day and I'd love Farnborough Hill to do that um, but so far that, that hasn't happened obviously there are quite a few girls in the area who were at school there so they have their own reminiscences of, of um, Farnborough Hill then and now as it were but the mausoleum is open every Saturday, so that is well worth a visit. What about other uh, historical markers that are dedicated to the Empress? Did you are there some that you haven't mentioned? There are very few, to be honest. There, there are some roads in Farnborough. There's the Empress Avenue. Uh, the the polling district is called the Empress District. There are apart from that. There is not a great deal. She was much more concerned with both her, her husband and her son being recognised. And there is a monument to the Prince Imperial in Chislehurst. There was, she paid for one in Paris. Um, she was remarkably reticent about her own personality or her own uh, figurehead. You know, there was an approach. She had, because she had so many bits and pieces come back from the French government, she had a a museum in the in the gardens of Farnborough Hill, and this included carriages and uh, Bonaparte's signature grey overcoat and his hat and swords and guns. There was even a a, a miniature version. Well, I say miniature, ten twelve foot high 
of the Vendome column, which had existed in Paris and had been destroyed by the Commune. And all these bits and pieces were, were there and, and visitors were allowed to go and see it. Again, I don't think it was open to the public, but there was Napoleon's death mask was in there. Um, she'd retrieved the clothes from the Prince Imperial when he'd been killed. In fact, when she moved to Farnborough Hill, she had a room built in uh, in the house that was the exact replica of his study in Chislehurst, even down to the unopened envelopes. But there was nothing of hers in this museum. For her, uh, she wanted to remember her husband and son. And in a way, that's really what's happened. I, th- I think she's much... She's much maligned by by French history, and I think she's much uh, or far less well known than she deserves to be uh, in both Britain and in France. Oh, actually, one thing I will say: there is a bell. There is a bell in in 2020. They were going to celebrate or have celebrations in memorial of her death in 1920, but of course it coincided with the pandemic. But they did cast a bell called. Eugenie, and that is now actually in the crypt in St Michael's Abbey. And if you ever go down there, and there's, there's, you've got young children with you, the abbot tends to sort of say to the children, you know, you can ring the bell. It's on a cradle, rocking cradle, and it's supposed to be hung in the belfry in the on the monastery. But unfortunately, the belfry is uh, very unstable, and it's currently got an awful lot of scaffolding holding it up. So it could well this bell could end up staying in the crypt for many many years to come. I think. Now, in your research, um, how many or what academic historians from universities did you highlight in your study? Well, there was a couple of people who have done work on aspects of her life. Um, Alison McQueen has, has done one on the art that, that, that Eugenie had, both as patron and as a private collector. One of uh, Eugenie's later friends didn't regard her as having an intellectual appreciation of art. She knew what she liked and she would buy it at the various salons, but she didn't really have um, a great appreciation of that, but she, she knew her value as a patron. And so Alison McQueen went through chapter and verse about things that she bought. There is a book coming out fairly soon that takes that on by a British professor called Anthony Geraghty, and he has gone through all the auction catalogues, as I understand it, and all the pictures of Farnborough Hill and is trying, or presumably has now succeeded, in tracing where all these things ended up. Because whilst the French government bought back, uh, indirectly in many cases, some of the the things that came up for auction, uh, some works have disappeared. So certain paintings we know exist because someone's got a, a picture of them and now it just says private collection, but no one quite knows whose private collection. Um, some of her jewellery comes up for sale every now and then. And um, relatively recently, uh, a crown that had been made for her for the welfare in 1855, which had, you know, X thousand diamonds and emeralds and whatever else, which was given back to her by the French government. She left that to uh, a great niece. And that eventually came up for sale relatively recently. And the buyer then donated it to the Louvre. And actually the Louvre of in recent years, have been buying back various bits and pieces. Um, so, so Geraghty's book will be very interesting to see what <laughs> what he's found. A couple of people have written biographies of her as empress, uh, what I call academic biographies. 
Desmond Seward wrote one uh, about 16 or 17 years ago. Um, but Alison McQueen at uh, uh, Master University in Canada is is one of the the most significant um, academic historians. She's an art historian who's looked at her her life and her work from that perspective. What um, wartime reparations came about as a result of the Franco-Prussian War? Well, the Prussians were determined to basically end the French economy, and they were required to to, uh, pay back 5 billion francs. Now, in modern terms, that is about $600 billion. And the, the, the Prussians thought, well, this is there's no way the French economy is going to recover from that. But it did. And in fact, they paid it all back within two years. And the Prussians who had occupied parts of northern France, every time the French paid back a bit, they, the Prussians would move out of a bit of territory. And basically, the French did this because they had a, a, a good banking structure and they sold bonds. And lots of people bought bonds for nationalistic reasons. And, um, you know, there was 5% interest on this 5 billion francs. But to pay it off in, in two years was extraordinary. And the, the French economy wasn't as damaged as the Prussians thought it was going to be. I think it rather surprised Bismarck. But that's an awful lot of money. Eugenie left France with nothing. Um, did she recover a considerable amount of property, artwork, um, Bonaparte memorabilia? Um, how did she manage all of that? Well, she had kept a list, I think it's fair to say. So she knew what she wanted. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, that, that the French government didn't want to have anything to do with, with, the, with the empire or indeed with the, the previous monarchies. So they just sort of shoveled tons of it back to her. I mean, quite extraordinary. And then a few years later, the, the French sold off the crown jewels far below the market value. And in fact, a lot of jewellers, a lot of American jewellers, Tiffany in particular, bought a lot of the crown jewels. A couple did survive, but it's it's amazing the uh, short-sighted nature of uh, the French at that stage wanting to rid themselves of anything to do with the imperial rule. But as a, you know, as I say, she she had this museum. She had a house full of um, not just artwork. In fact, some of her dresses, would you believe? Um, some friends had gone into the Tuileries not long after Eugenie had left and gathered up these crinolines, which was the, the main fashion in the 18, late 1850s. And uh, she would keep them in her house, particularly her villa, in, uh, and let people try them on. You know, they'd, they flounced around in a crinoline, much to everybody's amusement, I would imagine. But um, it, yes, it was surprising what, what did actually come her way and what eventually was sold at auction. Though, strangely enough, a lot of those auctions weren't initially publicised in France. And there was one one museum in northeast England has got a collection of her shoes. And they were bought at one of the auctions in, in 1821, I believe it was, uh, 1921, and um, by just someone who was an admirer of hers. And when he died, he bequeathed them to this, this random museum, the Bose Museum in, in Northumbria. So, you know, there's there's various bits and pieces that... Are still floating around, and bits of her jewellery come up now and then. Um, she didn't sell all of it to, to fund their lifestyles. She gave away bits and pieces as, as as wedding presents, one to Queen Mary, one to her goddaughter, who was the uh, the Queen of Spain, who was called Victoria Eugenie. Um, but that's a strange story in itself, actually, because 
one of the, the big tiaras was interchangeable between pearls and emeralds. And when she left, she took with her these emeralds. And at some stage, and stories vary, either when the Victoria Eugenie married the King of Spain or in Eugenie's will, she left her a, a box with a fan in it, which is very underwhelming. And the box wasn't opened for some considerable time, either months or years. And when they opened the box, out fell nine square cut emeralds, which then were reset several times, actually. So it's quite, quite, quite strange. I think she was trying to avoid the tax, actually. But um, she was quite a savvy individual, was, was Eugenie. If the Empress could have been exiled to any other place, where would it have been? Well, in some respects, it's surprising she didn't go to Spain because she had family ties there. There were some people who, even after she'd moved into Farnborough, thought that she should have gone and lived in Austria, for example. Um, some call Farnborough a dull little village. And Eugenie did suffer from rheumatism. And despite putting central heating into the Farnborough Hill, um, one of the reasons she, she wanted a villa in the south of France was so she could escape the worst bits of, of the British winter. And it took several years before the French government would allow her to to move and, and buy a property down there. So in a way, it's surprising she didn't go to Spain. Though strangely enough, the Queen of Spain, who'd been deposed in the in the 18, late 1860s, went to exile in France. It's a rather sort of strange uh, roundabout going on there. But I think she might have gone to live in Austria. There were rumours at this one stage that she was looking at property there. But I think she was settled in England because she because she had a friendship, because she had her ties with the British royal family. Um, she had a yacht and she could go wherever she wanted in, in the summer. But um, I think she found that the British were very receptive to her and, and didn't hold things against her as she'd found in, in France. Are there stories um, or uh, anecdotes about the Empress's enemies, uh, actual people, individuals? Did you, do you, can you write about them? Well, the, the two people I highlighted were two members of the Bonaparte family who both felt that um, they had a better call to being in, in power than Eugenie. And one was, uh, he was called Prince Napoleon, uh, and he was a cousin of Napoleon III. Everybody's called Napoleon, you have to remember that, because they all wanted to be associated with the great Bonaparte. And he hated Eugenie. He hated her even more when she gave birth to a son and he was pushed down the, the line of any potential succession. Um, and he hated her to the extent that uh, on one occasion, Napoleon asked him to propose a toast on the Empress's birthday and he refused. And he was just, uh, he, he was known to be coarse and rude, intelligent, but just not a nice man. So Napoleon III did his best to sort of keep sending him out of the country on missions, but you know he turned up like a bad penny every so often. And the other was was a cousin of his of, of Napoleon's, um, a sister of Prince Napoleon, if you're following me here, and called Matilde. And she had in fact been engaged to Napoleon before he'd been imprisoned after one of his coup attempts. But that engagement had fallen through because he, Napoleon III was in prison for five years. And he, she'd married a, a Russian that hadn't worked out. And she'd come back to Paris and acted as hostess for Napoleon until he married Eugenie. And she didn't like Eugenie. She, 
she became a big patron of the arts and she had a, a very famous salon. Now, salons were where you invited the, the great and the good, the artists, the literati, and with great gossip centres. And she would spread increasingly vindictive gossip about uh, Eugenie. Uh, on one occasion, um, Eugenie sent her a couple of dresses from her uh, couturier and Mathilde replied by sending her a sausage uh, because she said she likes sausages. And, you know, to be fair to Eugenie, she wrote a very pleasant thank you letter. But she knew that when she went to Egypt, in fact, to open the Suez Canal, it was a way of escaping some of the increasingly vindictive uh, cartoons and, and just generally gossip about her. So even towards even before the empire fell, she was victimised. And, you know, it's very difficult if you don't have the right of reply to be a victim in that situation. You know, you can't go on record, you know, in those days and argue against it. But if your nemesis, who Princess Matilda was, is basically passing on, uh, you know, th this sort of vitriol to the chroniclers of the period, that's what gets reported, that's what people read, and that's what they believe. You say the Empress embraced technology. How and why so is that? She wasn't one for reading frothy novels. She would read science books. And she was fascinated and uh, not just fascinated, she had a real interest in technology. So, for example, um, when she was in exile, she lent uh, Marconi her yacht for some of his experiments in telegraphy. She was very keen on flying. The Farnborough was a big flying centre, still is. And she desperately wanted to fly, but um, no one would let her, basically. She had, uh, she went to see one of the very first cinema, proper, proper film cinemas. She had uh, a telegraph put on her yacht. She had telegraph in her house. She had telephone in her house. It was the first house in the area to have ele electricity. And she could, she could talk to people um, very knowledgeably about the, the, what what was happening in the, in the world of technology, she she was one of those people that 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 was something that interested her far more than far more than fashion, I think, really, to be quite honest. And and so she did embrace it, and she did um, encourage people. I mean, you know, lending your yacht to Marconi when he was a sort of up and coming, not very well renowned uh, scientist. You know, he's well, yes, off you go, you can have the yacht for the summer. And, and, and when he sent his test transmissions from um, Newfoundland, the first message came back to the king and the second message came back to Eugenie, which gives you some idea of the regard in which she was held by him. Where else did the empress travel that got notoriety? Um, and did she ever remarry? No, I don't think she'd like marriage the first time round, so she certainly wasn't going to be tempted a second time. She went up and down the Med in her yacht. She went back to um, Egypt, as I as I mentioned earlier. She went up to uh, Norway one occasion and sort of bumped into the Kaiser, who's uh, his him and his little private yacht and his fleet were there. This is pre World War One, obviously. She went to Sri Lanka. Now, this was um, a friendship she developed with a, a man called Thomas Lipton of tea fame. And Lipton was a great sailing fanatic. And he, he was a bit of a teller of tale 
of, of, of tales, really. And he'd had a big uh, tea plantation in Sri Lanka, and he'd said to her, oh, you must come to Sri Lanka, you must come to Sri Lanka. And she took him up on that. And so she went to Sri Lanka, and she spent several weeks there. And she was met there by, uh, this was a British uh, colony, and she was met there by the, the sort of district agent who uh, wasn't overly impressed. He thought that she still expected the the courtesies due to an empress, though it was 40-odd years since the empire had fallen. Um, but she was very, she just loved travel. I mean, she, on one occasion she went up Vesuvius, not long after there'd been a an eruption since his 1906. So she's getting on in years, she's 80-odd. And she goes up uh, about a month after this eruption. She goes up on the train, actually, because the lava had fallen on the other side of the volcano. And they dug the, the train line out of the uh, ash. And she went up to this hotel that was halfway up. And uh, Thomas Cook, who were the premier estate, uh, estate agents, the premier travel agents in that period, had, had built this hotel. So she went up there. And then she went around the observatory looking at uh, the, the way that they monitor the, the volcanic activity in the area. And then she went off to Pompeii to see the site of the the, the, more, the more famous eruption of Vesuvius. So she she travelled all over the place. I mean, say during the winter she went. Initially, she used to go to Florence before she had her villa in the south of France. There's never any suggestion she wanted to go to the States, though, which is interesting because I think that would have been a country that would have interested her. And during the First World War, she had a, a visitor who was an Irish historian. And journalist, and he would quite often bring visitors from the states to see her, and she, you know, would listen to them and learn about what was going on in the world from their perspective. I suspect they got quite a sort of genteel interrogation about other aspects of the world, and she read voraciously when her eyesight allowed, because she had cataracts was the end of her life about what was going on. But she, she was a great, she was a great traveller. Political reformation, both in England and France, um, what ultimately changed because of Eugenie that has like lasting resonance for, for historians? Well, what has lasting resonance for women in France was that she promoted uh, secondary education for women, which was desperately neglected. Uh, you couldn't get the pre-university qualifications and she pushed this through. And she did a lot, actually, when she was regent. Napoleon was on a, a visit to Algeria, which is another British colony. Uh, was on a visit to Algeria, which was another French colony. And while she was regent, she sort of persuaded the, the, the Minister of Information to promote education. So there were courses set up at the Sorbonne, secondary education courses. Uh, they could take the baccalaureate, which was a necessity to get to university. The medical school was opened up to women. And in fact, the first graduate was a was a British woman who'd passed all the exams in Britain, but wasn't allowed a, a proper medical license. And she learned French and actually got a qualification in Paris. And so that that was a movement that was that was very important. The other thing she would do, uh, she would make unannounced visits on certain institutions, um, charities, hospitals, prisons, and push through certain reforms. Um, it must have been quite strange. You know, she'd sort of leave the, the palace at eight o'clock in the morning with just one lady in waiting in a carriage and knock on the door of a, a young offenders institute and, and demand to be taken round. And of course, the, these officials would have no knowledge of her impending visit. So she pushed through certain things like that. She, she awarded the first Legion d'honneur to a woman, to an artist called Rose Bonheur, 
while she was regent, while she had the power. Because you have to remember that women were not very highly regarded by French men and certainly not French uh, officials. But she was determined when she could to push forward on these, these what she thought were necessary reforms. And in a way, when you think that French women didn't get the vote in France until 1944, which is many, many years after virtually everywhere else in, in, a, in a modern Western country, um, you can understand the sort of battle she was fighting in, in the 1860s. Was the Empress in a frater or sore society of any kind? No, not that I'm aware of. She, she was, she was pretty religious, not to extremes. But if you want to think of a society, the, the church was was something that she was very uh, attached to, and she did fall out with some of the original monks in in the abbey. Um, but um, no, I think that was that was the sort of. Um, society of sorts that she she stuck up with and in fact when the the french launched a campaign in mexico one of the reasons she did it was they didn't want the america as it was then the us to who were a protestant state obviously to invade mexico um and she was desperate that uh, the stop of the the, the the ex, you know expansion of a, a Protestant state in South America could be could be halted. So I think the church was was her society. What else about the Empress or um, her history or legacy do you want to leave the NBN audience with? Who um, you know are in, who are probably interested in this uh, topic? Um, what else did we miss or anything? Well, I think that what you have to think about is that she was a woman who was held up as a fashion icon, but there was a lot more behind her. She did have some peripheral political uh, legacy because of the, the, the Treaty of Versailles, which I mentioned earlier, and, and the, the, re, the regaining of Alsace-Lorraine. She was one of the most beautiful women in the world, and some of her famous portraits still exist. Uh, there's one in, in the Met Museum. Um, there are you know, scattered around, the, around Europe other memorabilia of hers yet she is undervalued i think in france uh, having said that the the chateau and compagnie has just opened a museum of the second empire um and that's probably going to be well worth going to visit uh, if anybody's in france but i think i think that it's just that she's a forgotten woman largely because she spent if you think about it she spent 50 years of her life in exile and in that period she kept a very low profile it, it, if I was to relate her to a more modern figure, if you think in British terms of Princess Diana, who was a fashion icon, who everybody knew, Eugenie was that woman in that period. You could say, well, what about Queen Victoria? But Queen Victoria had gone into mourning after Albert had died in, in 1861. And that was just when Eugenie was becoming well-known. And whereas Victoria was well-known in the British Empire, she wasn't very well-known in the States. Whereas Eugenie, because of her fashion work predominantly, um, was very well known in the States. The, the one I think I would say that her legacy is, is demeaned, I think, but sometimes that there were some strange conscious, uh, consequences of what she did. For example, um, her milliner decided that all the vogue would be to have feathered friends in their hats. So what they would do is they take not just exotic feathers they take exotic birds and create hats around them 
And this became a terrible, terrible blight on these birds around the world because you get these bird hunters who go into South America and they'd shoot birds of paradise, egrets, uh, hummingbirds. The empress even had hummingbird earrings, would you believe? And because she wore them and because they appeared in all the, the, the fashion papers, everybody else wanted to wear them. Hundreds of thousands of birds would be killed. There was a, a market for them in London and they'd sell them by the trayload for a few pence a bird or a few pence a trayload. And it wasn't until the First World War when other things intervened that that stopped. They used to call it murderous millinery. Um, and, you know, you, pro- you know, there's, there's probably people now who could look, look in an old family photo album and find a distant aunt who's got a, a picture of, uh, of an ancestor with a, uh, a feathered hat that would be a consequence of what Eugenie wore as a, a fashion accessory back in the, in the 1860s. But that would be to demean her, her, her as an individual and the role she played in glamorising what was a very glamorous period in French history. Are you doing any public speaking engagements um, about your research? How can the NBN audience find out more about you either online or in person? Well, I've done a few already um, in the area, as you can imagine. People are interested in learning about it. I haven't done anything more um, elsewhere. Uh, maybe if some of your your uh, listeners are interested, I, I'm always happy to do to talk about her um, and show some of the, the the images that you inevitably collect when you when you're doing your research into uh, her. But it's um, you know, I, I, if people, it, it's it's not a particularly expensive book. It's got lots of pictures, and I really would think if you know nothing about the French Empire, um, eighteen fifty-two to eighteen seventy, it, it's I think an interesting introduction to a period of history that is not as well known as perhaps it it should be. Certainly, I think Napoleon gets a bad press um, for what he did for France. He, he was quite a flawed individual, but. You know, even if you go to Paris and you think actually this all started in the in the 1850s because Napoleon wanted to create a brand new city, uh, and that that's his legacy, and and she was part of that time. It was great getting to know about you and Empress Eugenie, um, a footnote history, 1826 to 1920. And on behalf of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, we thank historian and journalist Joanne Watson for teaching us about the history of the Empress. Stay up to date on all things NBN to get more episodes on literature and history.